How many of you here today have ever had a mom or a mom influence in your life? We are so glad, moms, that you are here. You have shaped us. You have protected us. You have unconditionally loved us. And you've changed our lives. And so this morning, we want to say thank you. Would you join me in just applauding and thanking moms today? And, and now we do this every year, but I think it's important. I, I know you just greeted people, and now you shifted. You're going to greet some others. But what I need you to do during this is I need you, if your mom is here, to go get her and give her a hug. If your mom is not here, go hug someone who looks like your mom. <laughs> Ready? Go. So isn't it amazing, even when we're trying to love mothers, our differences can create some friction? In several weeks from now, at the end of this month, I will gather with my siblings and our spouses and my mom and dad to celebrate my mom's 80th birthday. And we are going to gather for the Reisner tribe gathering for our family reunion. And even in that process... It's been a struggle to put all that together. Even in this expression of loving mom, it's been a struggle to agree on how this all was going to happen. First, we had to agree on the time, and our schedules are just so different. We finally were able to nail that down. We struggled to agree on a location because we all have different opinions. And so somebody finally decided that we're going to meet in Arkansas home of the Copperheads, Tornadoes, and 110% humidity. A brilliant stroke on someone's behalf. And then we had to agree on accommodations, and we've discovered now that one of the couples is going to have to sleep on a pull-out couch, one of those, those sofa bed things. And so my vote is for my youngest brother, Jay, who was always loved most by mom, and spoiled, and so I'm just saying. <laughs> Staying in unity to express love is not rocket science, but it's also not very natural for us. The need to stay in unity to express love may not be obvious in the present moment, but we will discover how vital it is for our future moments. We have been nailing down this declaration that, that because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, that what God starts, God finishes. And on this road that we're traveling, this, that there's, there's these places where we almost stop or we do get halted. We've got these signs behind us saying road closed ahead. And we hit those moments and we say, I, I can't move ahead. But yet Jesus said, I want you to understand that what God starts, he finishes. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, that you, you go online to our website and, and get the podcast and find those truths that prepare us for the truths that you're going to hear today. With that in mind, I also want to tell you that we need to, to understand that, that God will not force us to finish what he started. We have free choice. 
Now, he will encourage us, and, and he will help try to motivate us, and he will even discipline us, and he will pursue us, and he will reveal truth to us to get us on the way. But he will not force us. Individually, we have those choices. But he will finish what he started, and it's our choice whether or not we will be with him in the finishing process. We have revealed to you to the extent that Jesus Christ has gone to prepare us for the future, to prepare us to the end that he wants to bring us to. And he wants us to realize, and Paul the Apostle then jumps in with his own words that says, okay, here's what Jesus did, but understand, if you're going to take a hold of what Jesus did, then you have got to do some things too. Jesus just doesn't pull up and say, jump in the car and I'll take you to the end. He says, you've got to do some things. And whether we recognize it or not, it always revolves around this our tribe, our family, our community. It is the process in which he said, you will reach the end that I have prepared for you. You cannot go there alone. You must go together. Jesus made it very clear that when we get to the end, here's what it's going to be. We're going to be able to look back and say, I loved God with my whole heart. Because that's what Jesus said the whole deal is about anyhow. I loved God with my whole heart and my neighbor as myself. You cannot do one without the other. You can't... Well, let me ask you, what, what's more important, breathing in or breathing out? Yes. yes. You've got to have both. And in this situation, you've got to have both. You've got to have both community and you, loving each other, and you've got to be loving God. And see, here's the problem. If the, if the modern church has been targeted for anything... It's been the fact that they've been so good at declaring that God loves people and yet people finding very little evidence that the church does the same. And so we've come to this point that we need to understand that even in our community of trying to love God, that we do have these differences that can create friction. And what do we do with those? There is an old Jewish joke that says if you've got two rabbis, you've probably got three opinions. And you go walk around this building and you talk to people, you will see that we all have opinions and we have more than one opinion. We have opinions about theology. We have opinions about style. We have opinions about, about what we wear. We have opinions about what songs we sing. We have opinions about leadership styles. We have so many differing opinions. I just love the opinions I'm getting on what I wear on Sunday mornings. Some of the, the older traditional people in this church, they love it when I wear suits. And I thank you so much because I walk by and I go, now, now you look good. So thank you. Others will say, Pastor, you wore jeans today. That is so, that's great. Jeans, that's good. My wife and I had about a two-hour conversation a week ago last night. And I mean an intense conversation about what clothing is appropriate. She, she passed on this today. I'm Okay. But we all have these opinions as to how things should function within the community of faith. And so I've come to this conclusion. And then this is what I, what I understand. Unity is not uniformity. When I was in high school, my senior year, I ran track and I ran what we call back then the two-mile relay. And so we had these four guys that we, we all ran an equal amount, equal distance. And, and the first guy who ran, his name was Dennis. And Dennis 
was a lead singer for a rock band, and he was so cool, and he had really long hair, and he was just so handsome, and he was a ladies' man. He just, a lady just swooned when he sang. He was the lead runner. He, he, he took off, and, and he would hand the baton to Greg. Now, Greg was so totally opposite of Dennis, because Greg was an introvert, and he was a geek. And I don't think he ever dated he would hand off to me. I had the third leg, and, and I was known as a guy who'd like to ha- have fun, be funny, and I would go to a few parties, but not very many, and I never drank, and they, they all knew that. And then I would hand off to, to, to Tom, and, and Tom, Tom always drank. Tom was a severe partier. Tom had such natural ability, he really never worked out with the track team. He just ran. He just was that good. Now, here's the deal. Whenever one of us would run, the rest of us would be screaming for them. And when Tom would cross the finish line with that baton in his hand, we were all crossing the finish line with him because that was our baton. You would never find uniformity with us four together. But you found incredible unity because we all had the same focus. And that focus got us to our goal. That focus was our motivation. If you get a community together and they are not in unity, I would like to propose to you today that they do not have the proper motivation. So the question is this morning, what is our motivation as we as a community of faith here this morning? And it's simply this. Jesus is the motivation of our unity. And you say, well, that's so simple. It is, but we seem to forget that so often because we get so wrapped up in the stuff around us and the technical parts and the organization. Jesus is our motivation for unity. Listen to what Paul says as he's writing to his friends in Philippi regarding this whole concept of Jesus being the center of our unity. Philippians 2, he says this, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. In the first century, in the Jewish world, those young men who were smart dedicated, focused, really, really talented with abilities. They would get drafted by the rabbis. The rabbis would come by, check them out, and they'd say, come follow me. That was the invitation to come learn with me. And those students would stick with the rabbi. There there was a saying that they would get the dust off the rabbi's feet because they would be so close. Even in modern day Hebrew world, there's even this saying that if the rabbi goes into the bathroom, you go with him into the bathroom so that you never miss a word that he says. It's that kind of dedication. And so they would select these young men and they would walk with the rabbi because the rabbi would teach them how to love God with their whole heart. And he would teach them that so well, how he would do that, that eventually they would do it just like he did it and eventually they would be rabbis and they would go to other students and say, come follow me. Now, if you didn't make the grade, if no rabbi would choose you, you would go back home to your family and you would learn the family trade. And that's what you would do for your life. So when Jesus Christ, the rabbi, is walking by the Sea of Galilee and he sees these young men fishing, he knows they didn't make the grade. They were doing their dad's job, his business. So you can understand how they must have felt when this rabbi walks by and he says to these fishermen, come follow me. You now have the invite 
to come be with the rabbi. Because you've read those scriptures before and you say, well, why would they just drop everything in their nets and leave their father and go? Because this was the chance of a lifetime. And even though, even, even the parents would say, go, go, don't miss this, go. We'll take care of the place, go. So they did. And they followed that rabbi, rabbi for three years. Until the intense moment came that false charges were brought and this Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. And what did these guys do? They did the unthinkable, the unfathomable. They abandoned their rabbi. Oh, you can't do that. And one of them even disowned him, said, I don't even know him. That fisherman named Peter immediately felt his shame. He knew what he had done. And he lived in that shame. And even after Jesus died and rose again, Peter still lived in that shame. Didn't know how to deal with that. So what did he do? He went back to his father's trade and began to fish because he was living in his shame. Jesus made him breakfast and invited him to sit down and have a conversation. And the end of the conversation was this remarkable phrase. Follow me. We're not done. You messed up royally. You living, you're living in your shame. But what I have begun, I always finish. Now, continue to follow me. And he spoke encouragement into his life. And he did do exactly that. If there's anybody who understands what Paul just wrote when he said, if there's any encouragement being united with Christ, Peter understood that. The word there, encouragement, that he uses actually means to move up very close and to speak that person's name with the intention of encouraging them. Peter, come follow me. You see, we sit in here today because we are mess-ups, because we have lived in our shame, but somehow Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has spoken our name. Janice, come follow me. Albert, come follow me. Jessica, come follow me. Bob, come follow me. You say, but I've messed up. He says, that's okay. I'm speaking encouragement into you. You can still do this. God calls us by name even when we've messed up. What's amazing about this is he said, if anyone has encouragement by being united in Christ, that word united actually means that this is a fixed point. That if you hear his call and you stay close to him in that fixed point, he will not move, that he will be faithful to you and you can finish what he started and you come back to him. Some of you sit in this place today And you have wandered away from a relationship with God. And you think, I've gone too far, and he really doesn't care. I'm telling you that he is a fixed point for you. He has not wavered one bit. He has not vacillated. He has stayed there, and he has called you for you to come back to him so that he can say, come walk with me. We're going to finish what I started in your life. I mean, that's why John, who followed Jesus, wrote, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all impurity. He's saying, if you blow it, you can come back again. So he says, if you've experienced that, and when he says, if you've had any encouragement... By united with being united with Jesus, that word "if" isn't 
It really isn't what we think it is. And we would say, like, if you're going to do this, then perhaps I'll do this. No, no, no. It really means since. It would be like me calling my son Chad today saying, if you have a mother, be sure you call her today. Because I know he has a mother. And he better call her. Paul's saying, if, since you've had this, now there's something you must do. Pam and I do have two sons. One is 28 and one is 26. And they are now living on their own. At least in my mind, they are living on their own. I don't think they're living on their own in their mother's mind. Because there are those moments when we'll be talking on speakerphone with them and one of them, Chad, will say, and mom, thanks for sending me that money. I will look at her and I'll mouth the words, what money? She'll go, shh, shh. We'll get done, I'll say, what money? Well, you know, he, he's trying his best and he's working two jobs and, and, and he just didn't, he didn't, he, he needed some help so I, I just sent him some money. It's our money. Why is he just thanking you? And secondly, where did it come from? Well, we don't need all our groceries this week. You know what that is? It's when Paul says, if there's any comfort from his love, it simply means this, by the tenderness of heart, you are willing to sacrifice whatever is necessary to keep that person moving ahead. It is a tenderness of heart that is willing to give that others can achieve. Check out this sign. Can you read it? If you are unemployed and need an outfit clean for an interview, we will clean it for free. That is so cool. You say, where is that? I have no idea. (laughs) But you see, that is comfort from his love. That is a mother's love. There's got to be a lady behind that. There's got to be a woman or a man who at least is in touch with his tender side. Because that is the tenderness, the, the compassion, the love. So see, whether you created the problem you're in right now or whether the problem came upon you and has caused your discomfort, tender love sacrifices. Tender love sacrifices. Isn't that what Jesus did for you? That he came to you and said, I will sacrifice even my life that you can finish what God started in you? If, and I know you have experienced that, then there's something that you have got to do. It's part of your plan. So when I asked you all to come down and sit in front here, Bert and Linda popped right in the front here. Thanks, guys. I watched these two. They didn't know I was going to talk about them this morning. They had no idea, so they're not sitting there as a prop. They, were, they had no idea. They're really involved in this wonderful thing we called Serve Erie, where we're gathering together and, and really collaborating with Grace Church and other churches and we're, we're helping to take care of people and, and, and helping people who can't take care of themselves and just doing some very wonderful practical things. I love what they're doing. I love what you're doing with them. But I've got to be honest with you. In our efforts, in Bert and Linda's effort, in my effort to love this city, sometimes we disagree. We've had, we've had disagreements over how to do that best. But you know what I really like about these guys? I love what the Holy Spirit's doing in them. 
how he guides them, how he directs them, how he strengthens them, strengthens them. They are spirit carriers. They are carrying our baton. Now, we will never be in uniformity. It's not going to happen. But we're in unity because we're going the same direction. He said, if you have any fellowship of the Holy Spirit, being one in the Holy Spirit gives room for partnership or what Paul called fellowship. The word is koinonia. Partnership is rooted in relationship. So I've gotten to know these guys better. We've been spending some time together, and, and the last time we did Servieri, a couple of us rode around with Linda and went to all the spots that, that were around, and we're getting to know each other's hearts. There's a relationship that's there. So I'm going to tell you right now, I trust their heart. And when you trust somebody's heart, you don't have to judge their actions because you already know their heart. And when we do that, it produces what Paul said here, if you have affection and sympathy. Simply put, what that means is this, that we like each other and we cover each other. Do you remember the story of Noah and the ark? How many remember Noah and the ark? You remember that? We quit right after they get there and the ark is, is emptied and the animals come out and we go, oh, the rainbow and ooh, good thing. Yeah, it's great and, and good. And, and we've held on to that promise that we would never die by flood in these last months as it's rained so much here. We just said, rainbow, we're good. But there's a story that follows that after they get back on earth and they start planting crops, Noah plants vineyards. And there's this... this the story that we don't get all the details, but there's just something that horrible has happened there, that somehow Noah has gotten drunk, and he's in his tent, and he's naked. And there's some kind of shame that the Bible does not describe that he involves himself in in that condition. And one of his sons walks in, sees his father's shame, and exploits it. We don't know what he did for sure, but he exploits his father's nakedness and his shame, and he tells his brothers about it, and the shame is spread. The two brothers, understanding the shame of their father, take a blanket and hold it up over their shoulders, and they walk backwards into the tent, and they lay the blanket over their father, covering his shame. As a result, the son who exploited the shame was cursed, and his, his nation that would follow him was cursed. And the other two were blessed by God. It is a reenactment, if you will. A revisualization of what happened in that garden when Adam and Eve, because of their own choices, found themselves naked and ashamed because the glory of God had been removed from them because of their actions. And God comes back into the garden and covers their shame. See, I don't want... Erie First Assembly to be known so much as, hey, they've got a great preaching team. Or, yay, they've got a great worship, a bunch of great worship teams. I want us to be known as people who really like each other and cover each other so this is a safe place to be. 
I want this to be a place that when you get up on Sunday morning and you know there's a gathering here, you're not saying, hey, I wonder who's preaching and what he's going to speak on and uh, who's leading worship. And, and I want you to say, I know who's going to be there. I can't wait to see my friends. And when you see each other around the hallway or in this place and you ask each other how you're doing, you find out that there, there's issues they've been dealing with and, and you walk with them for the weeks to come that you cover them and care for them. That's what the church is. It's not a Sunday morning event. But the problem is that when we only do the Sunday morning event, then everything gets focused on Sunday morning and our opinions fly instead of our love covering. If you have any encouragement by being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any fellowship through the Holy Spirit that brings you affection and sympathy, liking each other and covering. He said, then you got to do this. Make my joy complete, he said, by being like-minded. Be like Jesus was to you. It's the only way you're going to get past the roadblocks. The only way you're going to get there. He said, here's what I want you to do. Everybody do this one thing. Consider others first. See, within the context of our revealing Jesus, and we said that's our goal, that's what we're trying to do, is reveal Jesus personally and with each other and and community. I have come to this conclusion that Jesus doesn't care so much how we do it, but as long as we do it together. You say, but it's more genius to do it this way. I know it probably is, but if we do it together, God has this way of saying, oh, whatever you do together, I make it work. It's going to happen. It's never been about the brightest, the prettiest, the most popular. It's always been about humility. Humility brings us into unity. So Paul continues, and he says this in Philippians, the second chapter. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Folks, it all pivots right here. The Greeks believed that free men should detest any sort of subjection. If you're a free man, you never subject yourself to anyone. And that is the atmosphere in which Jesus walked when he made it clear that he trusted his father so much that his father had control that he himself would submit to other people. And he makes it clear through his scriptures that if we do the same, that is our expression of worship. Our submission to others brings us to a place of worship before him. We are expected to submit to others, trusting God's control. So he said, here's how you do this. Don't have vain conceit, which means don't have empty opinion. Because we all have opinions. Let's just do this. Jim, will you stand for a moment? Just stand right there. So Jim has an opinion. Bert, stand up. Bert's got an opinion. Okay? Lucy, you you can't stand up. Scott, stand up. Scott's got an opinion. So here we've got three opinions. And they all might be great opinions. And all three of them may have been praying and saying, God gave me this thought and here's what we should do. And I've seen it happen where we had three opinions and every one of them said, God told me. So as long as we have those three opinions and they're not joined together, it is an empty opinion. Oh, what God gave it to me, it's still empty. 
You say, well, God showed this to me, but we're not really in unity. Then it's empty. Because Jesus made the statement where two or three are gathered together in my name and agree on touching any one thing, it shall be done. I release my power when you come to that spot. So here's what I'm saying to you. You may even think that this is God's desire and everybody else should do it. He says, I want you to come together with your opinions and discern what you should do together. New Testament, they called it, it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. And then just do something together. But what if it's not the perfect thing? God will make it work. Because it's a whole lot easier to steer a boat untied from the dock than one that's still tied there. So if we come together with our our opinions, and these guys say, okay, I'll, I'll submit to that, I'll submit to that. I'm not sure it's really the best thing, but I'll submit. As you move together, God will show you what to do. And you will arrive together, and his power will be released in that process. Thanks, guys. He said, do not do anything out of vain conceit or out of empty opinion. Fill it with the presence of God because of your unity together. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. That word means simply this. That I push my opinion on you so strongly that I finally wear you down and you just give up. I manipulate you. I I coerce you. I do end arounds. We've got people in this church who will go talk to a leader and say, I want to do this, and they'll talk about it and not discern that it's the best thing, and they'll call my office so they can talk to me so that I can overrule the person. They'll do an end around. And what I do is I send them right back, say, you guys got to discern what God's saying. But it is not God's will for us to wear each other down with our opinions. He said, instead, come together in unity and just discern what you can do together. The unity is more important than the methodology. That's why Paul said, do everything you can to keep keep the peace, the unity. See, we need to move more toward really enjoying each other and healing each other than working on our preferences. See, when somebody says to us, how's the church? If you ask me that and, and I start saying, well, Sunday morning, um, I really didn't like Pastor Jason's outfit because he wears those pointed shoes. I don't like those things. <laughs> and and I, I didn't know all the words to the songs. And, and, and I like the other guy preaching instead of that guy preaching. What we are doing is we're pushing uniformity because I want it to be the way that I think it should shape instead of unity. Followers of Jesus understand that others' needs are more important than themselves. I mean, that's the bottom line. That I can submit to you because I believe in the, in the control of Jesus, that Jesus has full control. And that's what it means to follow Jesus, to trust that he has control. So here's how we follow Jesus. And I gotta tell you, this is what I would call the BHAG, B-H-A-G, the big, hairy, audacious goal. This is the deal. Paul breaks out in this poem, this amazing poem that either he wrote or the church is already beginning to quote. And you should just nail this down in your Bible and revisit it every week. Go there. And here's what he says. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even 
death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue right, in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We like to quote that last verse, say every knee will bow, but we forget that first section of what he did and understand that above that he's saying, oh, you be that way. Everything points to this truth, and this is how we achieve a self-sacrificing unity within the church. See, Jesus was already equal with God, already equal. And his choice to become fully human and to fully obey his Father and walk the entire road to his death on a cross does not mean that it was a decision that he was going to get rid of his divinity. In fact, I like how Bishop N.T. Wright declares that he said it was a decision about what it really means to be divine. Jesus kept his divinity. In fact, the point of the cross was simply this. Paul would say to the church at Corinth, he said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. His divinity was there. It was on the cross. And because of that, God was reconciling the world to himself. He did not, did not get rid of his divinity. But what he did was this. Jesus refused to exploit his equality. His equality with God actually is what committed him to the course that he took. It brought us back to the cross where we look at him and understand truly who God is. And we must understand that if we're going to follow him, and it's this, that we understand that Jesus is the God of self-giving love. Jesus did what only a God could do. So now hear me clearly. How do we actually know God? Because he was revealing himself in the Old Testament and, and this amazing, amazing God. And, and, and Paul would say to the church at Rome, if you just look at creation, you'll find him. But we just don't get it. We don't get it. We just don't understand it. We didn't understand it to this point. We most clearly know God when he abandons his rights for the sake of the world. Then we go, got it. He's on the cross. Got it. He abandoned his rights and gave his life for us. I got it. That's when we finally said, comprehend who Jesus is. Comprehend who God is. He died for me. He abandoned his rights. That is love. That is God. Got it. He said, let that mind be in you. That was in Christ Jesus. Because you're part of the Messiah. That your friends will most clearly know Jesus when we abandon our rights to serve others around us. That's when they see Jesus. Three friends were discussing what they would want said at their funeral. The first one said, I want someone to say, I was a great humanitarian. I was very compassionate. Second guy said, I want them to say, he was a great father, such a good husband. The third one said, I want someone to say, hey, look, the body's moving. (laughs) See, in the end, everyone will submit to a name. Everyone will confess a name of Jesus. And that name is this, Lord. 
His death and his resurrection showed that he was Lord over even death. He is Lord over everything. There is no one greater than he is. And everybody, 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 everybody will say he is. So right now, there are those people who are saying that. There are those people who are living that. There are those people who are confessing that. There are those people who are submitting to that. There are those who are enjoying it. And he calls them his tribe, his church, his body. And after declaring it, then he says, understand all I've said in this passage simply says this, that the proof of his lordship, if he is lord, the proof of his lordship is that his body considers others first. Simple proof. I was having lunch yesterday with a good friend and we were talking about revival and, and God manifesting himself and, and wonderful things that he does in spe- specific places where there's these wonderful movements of God. But I've got to be honest with you, I think the most important thing for the church is that people would look at us and say, look how they care for each other. That's the deal. I see Jesus. Because I want, them, I want them to be able to, to look at him. I, I want them to look at Jesus and his death on the cross and not just say, oh, he was a good man. He was such a compassionate guy. He was such a humanitarian. He was just such a fathering figure for the world. Too bad he died. I want them to look at him and us and say, but look, his body is still moving. I started to cry immediately, and I looked at him. And I said, Ron, if I spent every second of every minute of every hour for the rest of my life telling you how sorry I am, it wouldn't come close to how my heart feels. I am so sorry. The one speaking is Jennifer Thompson Canino. That's her in the picture. She'd given eyewitness testimony that put that other man, Ronald Cotton, the man that's in the picture with her, behind bars for 11 years, and actually he was in there for two life sentences. He put her, or she put him behind bars for 11 years for raping her at knife point. He was later exonerated by DNA evidence. So Jennifer, in describing their first meeting after Cotton's release, said this, and Ronald just leaned down, he took my hands, and he looked at me, and he said, I forgive you. <laughs> Here's what Cotton said took place at that moment. He said, I told her, I said, Jennifer, I forgive you. I don't want you to look over your shoulder. I just want us to be happy and move on in life. The minute he forgave me, Jennifer continues, it's like my heart physically started to heal, and I thought, this is what grace and mercy is all about. This is what they teach you in church that none of us ever get. And here was this man that I hated. I mean, I used to pray every day of my life during those 11 years that he would die that he would be raped in prison and someone would kill him in prison. That was my prayer to God. And here was this man who with grace and mercy just forgave me. How wrong I was. How good he is. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. 
Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Because when we do, the people around us won't go, Jesus, look at him, he's dead. They'll look around and say, look, his body is still moving. Would you stand? I only ask you this. That what the Holy Spirit spoke to you while I was speaking to you today, where it, it, it provoked you, it said, ooh, 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 I've got to deal with that. Ooh, I, I've got to be this way. That you don't let it go. That you deal with it this week. And would you make it your goal with me that when people think of the church of Jesus in this city, and especially this gathering, that they'll go, those people really like each other. Those people really cover each other. Those people care for other people. And that will become the reputation of the body of Christ in this city. Would you make that your goal? So now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be blessing and glory and honor and power forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.